Well, this morning we will close out chapter 19 in the book of Matthew. Uh, You can find that on page number 1980 of the Pew Bibles. And we will be looking at verses 13 through 30. Did I say the right page? 980. I think I might have said 1980. I don't know what I'm thinking. Hear the word of the Lord. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, And went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that we can trust that you will move in our hearts to see how wonderful you are, to see all that you've done for us, that you are the one who moves us out of the glory of who you are to repent of our sins 
to remember all the grace you've given us and to look to the reward that is coming to us that we will inherit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at first glance, this seems like a story about the love of money. But I would submit to you that even though greed is definitely addressed in this story, this is primarily a story about assurance. This young man in our story comes to Jesus for assurance. He wants to know, excuse me, he wants to know for sure that he is blessed by God and that he has eternal life. Because on the outside, he appears to be very blessed by God. He's an Israelite. He's a member of the people of God. He's a good man. He claims to have kept all of the commandments and more than likely, he's kept them well enough to be able to think that. He's rich. <clears throat> For an Israelite at this time, to be rich was the sign that you had God's favor. But in spite of all of that, he is still unsure. Even though this man had all the worldly blessings someone in his culture and his society at this time could ever have, he comes up to Jesus because he knows something is missing. He still doubts whether he truly has God's blessing. He still doubts whether he's done enough to gain eternal life. And so his question is our question this morning, which is this. How can we have assurance that we really are someone who is blessed by God? That we really will inherit eternal life on the last day? So we see three things in our passage to answer that question. First, we see that we must remember, and then we must repent And finally, we must look to our reward. And so first, we must remember. So most of us here in this room this morning, I would imagine, would call ourselves a Christian. Which means we can look back to something in the past that helps us to know that we personally have become a child of God and we have entered into the kingdom of heaven. And for many of us, what we look back to is a time of decision on our part. But I would caution us against doing that. Because if we're looking back to a time of decision on our part for our assurance that we truly have become a child of God, that means we can also decide not to follow God someday. And if we're basing it on that decision that we made, our assurance is just as rocky as our ability to change our mind. I would suggest that if we looked back before the moment of that decision, we would all see that God was already working in our lives in so many ways that led up to that decision. He was blessing us. He was keeping us. He was protecting us. He was convincing us. 
He was arranging circumstances, and through all of that, he was drawing us to himself in some way, so that when we finally make the decision, it really is just an acknowledgement that God has been after us the entire time anyway, and he finally wore us down until we turned to him and said, oh, wow, you have saved me. And so with that in mind, listen to how our passage begins. Matthew writes this. He says, Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So many of the commentaries I read are written by Baptists. And they all took this passage and they pointed back to Matthew chapter 18 and said what's happening here is something very similar that we see there, where Jesus tells us that we must become like children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus is actually saying something very different here. Here, people are not told to become like children, but parents are bringing actual children to Jesus so that he will bless them. It was very common for Jews to bring their children to a rabbi to be blessed by the rabbi, and these parents have recognized Jesus as a spiritual authority that they want to bless their children. And the disciples, of course, think there's better things that Jesus could be doing with his time, but Jesus rebukes the disciples, and when he does so, he says something very interesting. He says, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such or to children just like this, belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then he lays his hands on them, he blesses them, and then he goes on his way. So this is very different than what we read in chapter 18. He's not talking to adults, telling them they must humble themselves and become like children. He's talking to actual children, children who don't even know they should come to Jesus for a blessing, children who someone else has to bring to Jesus to get his blessing, and Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children just like that. This means the kingdom of heaven belongs to children who are brought to Jesus, who Jesus blesses. The kingdom is theirs even before they have faith. I would submit to you that is the very clear reading of these words. Well, how does that work? Well, here's how. These children will grow up hearing that Jesus himself laid his hands on them and blessed them and told them that the kingdom was theirs. Jesus, the one who raised the dead, the one who calmed the storm, the one who healed the blind and the lame and the lepers, the one who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he is the one who placed his hand on you, my son. And he blessed you. And he said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Imagine growing up knowing that that is your identity. That you are someone who was touched and blessed by Jesus. 
Maybe one was old enough to remember seeing and hearing Jesus pray that blessing over him. Or maybe another grew up hearing the stories about the day her mom took her to Jesus and he laid his hands on her forehead and blessed her. That's who you are, my daughter. You are blessed by God. That is your identity. We live in a world that tells us that being blessed means we need to discover who we are and then live out who we think we are authentically in this world. But that is way too much to ask of any one soul. Because as soon as we realize that that identity cannot stand up against reality, it will crumble. The truth is, we are the kind of being who needs to be told who we are. We are the kind of creature who needs to receive an identity so that we can remind ourselves of that reality over and over again when we're struggling with doubt, when we're struggling with depression, when we're struggling against sin and temptation, right? In the, in the midst of that vice, right, where it's squeezing you, if we're trying to hold on to some identity that we built with toothpicks, it's going to get crushed. We need something so much more powerful in those moments to hold on to. We need to remind ourselves in those moments that I am someone who was taken to Jesus, the God-man who died for sinners and rose from the dead. I was taken to him, and he blessed me, and I belong to him, and that's who I am. And that is what baptism is. Every baptism we do in this church, as the family is coming up front, we say these words. Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And if you're here this morning and you've been baptized, remember your baptism. That doesn't mean that you can somehow remember when you were an infant and when you were baptized. What it means is, remember that your parents took you to Jesus. Or if you were a, an adult when you were baptized, remember that Jesus brought you to himself, and he blessed you. And he adopted you into his family. And that the waters of baptism mean that just as water washes away dirt from our body, so the Holy Spirit washes away our sin and our corruption. It means we've died with Christ. We've been buried with him and raised to a new life. We've been washed and cleansed and united to him. We've been sealed and marked by the grace of God. That's who you are, Christian. If you ever doubt, remember who you are. Remember the promises of God to you and your baptism. Remember who your baptism says you are and whose your baptism says you are. And if you're here this morning and you've never been baptized, and you would like to have this confidence that you are a child of God, then believe. Believe that Jesus will bless you like this too. Believe that Jesus, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you white as snow. And that he's calling you to receive the waters of baptism. He's inviting you to be sealed and marked by his grace. 
and then come and talk to me or an elder of our church or talk to anybody in this building and we will figure out how to make that happen. So if we ever doubt our assurance, if we ever doubt that we are blessed by God, we must remember that he has given us his blessing, that we are his child, and we must never forget that we are who God says we are. The second thing we must do is repent. So after telling the story of Jesus blessing the children, we meet a rich man. Uh, Matthew and Mark tell us he's young. Luke tells us he's a ruler. Everyone tells us he's rich, and so we call him the rich young ruler. Maybe you've heard of this man before. And this is a man who is an Israelite. He's a member of one of the 12 tribes. He is a member of God's covenant community. He's part of the people who received all of the gifts and the promises that came with the law and the prophets. Surely he was circumcised on the eighth day of Israel. So he is also someone who should be able to remember all of the blessings given to him by God. And from all the evidence we have, he's a good man. He's even coming to Jesus to find out if there's more good things that he should be doing. But instead of remembering and trusting in who God says he is, at some point in time in his life, he began to trust in his own goodness. And since that will never be enough, he doubts. He doesn't have assurance anymore that he is truly blessed by God, that he is a child of God, and that he will inherit eternal life. And, and so he comes to Jesus because deep down he knows he's not good enough. And maybe that's us this morning. Maybe one of us knows we've been baptized. We know we're a child of God. We know we've tried to be good enough. We've tried to live up to our identity as an adopted child of God and his family. We've tried to make him proud, but in our heart of hearts, we know it's not good enough. We know that we've failed him. How can we shake that gnawing sense that we've not done enough? How can we shake that feeling that I'm a fraud and I'm going to be found out by someone? How can we have assurance? If that's one of us this morning, I invite us to listen to this story. Verse 16, And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. So this young man wants to know, What's the goodness that I'm lacking, Jesus? What level of goodness do I need to add to my life to ease my conscience? And essentially what Jesus says is, why are you asking me what good thing you can do? There's only one who is good. Jesus is saying, give it up, son. It's never going to happen. If you want to be good enough, that train has left the station and there's only one person on it. And then, Jesus goes on, if you would enter eternal life, or sorry, if you would enter life, keep the commandments, which no one can do perfectly because there's only one who is good. Jesus is trying to help this man understand. He's hoping that by confronting him with the law that he will recognize that he hasn't kept these commandments. 
But the man said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, huh, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? So he believes he's kept all the commandments. He obviously wasn't there. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 where we learn that, that even being angry with our brother makes us guilty of murder. That even looking at another person with lust in our heart makes us guilty of adultery. That honoring our father and mother means submitting to every authority that God has placed over us. The greed itself is stealing. This young man doesn't know all that, which is why he thinks he's kept the commandments, but he does know, by God's grace, that something is still missing. He thinks he's kept the law, but his conscience is still bothering him because the law of God is written on every human heart, and so deep down, he knows God requires more of him so he wants to know, what else do I have to do, Jesus? I've kept all the commandments, I'm doing great, but I feel like I've got to add a little bit more. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so with that, Jesus helps this young man to realize that he has not even kept the first commandment. The first commandment tells us that we should have no other gods before us, or before God. And Jesus has just exposed that this young man, his real God, is money. His greatest assurance that God has blessed him comes from his money and his possessions. That's the true object of his faith. Israelites at this time believed riches were the sign of God's favor. <laughs> but not only that, riches are really good at bringing friends and power and influence and comfort and pleasure, which is why money is the perfect false god. Because it tells us two things, right? It tells us, hey, I'm blessed by God. That's why I have all this money. At the same time, it opens up for us everything the world has to offer, which we think is rightfully ours because we're so blessed by God. Which is why Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You see, this man believed he was blessed by God because of his money, and he's not alone. Everyone with money faces the same temptation, which would include pretty much all of us who live in America. We're tempted to trust what money tells us about God's favor on us and then to believe that all the blessings that money provides belong rightfully to us. And those blessings so easily become our ever-present help in time of need instead of God. This is why Jesus says it's easier for a camel 
which is the largest animal that probably any of them had seen at that time. It's easier for a camel to fit through an eye of a needle, which is the smallest hole that anyone could probably imagine. Jesus is trying to say it's impossible. It's impossible for a rich man to trust in Jesus more than his riches. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, money, money has the power to make us forget who we really are. Money can make us forget that the one who is truly blessed is the one who trusts in God alone. And so Jesus calls this young man to repent of the very thing that he is trusting in more than God. Jesus' call on this young man's life is to repent, to lay down his riches, right? He's holding them. Jesus says, lay them down so that your hands are free to receive the blessing of God, which is to follow Jesus. And the evidence of his repentance would be selling it all so that he could follow Jesus. So what are you trusting in more than Jesus today, Christian? What are we turning to for comfort and security? What is the thing that makes us feel blessed by God? even if it's in the moment. And it's followed by guilt and shame. Is it our money? Or is it the comfort and the pleasure and the entertainment and the food and the travel and the power and the prestige in our community that money can buy for us? Is that the thing we're trusting in to have assurance we are blessed, whether we have money or not? Is that what we are trusting in the most for peace and joy and confidence that we are blessed by God? Because if it is, we'll never be able to shake that feeling that we're not good enough. Only repentance can ease this burden. Turn from the false God to Jesus. And Jesus isn't commanding all of us to sell everything, but he is commanding all of us to trust in him alone and to follow him. Listen to the prophet Malachi. Writing to Israel, he says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you were robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God is telling the Israelites, don't hold on to your money. Don't trust it to bless you. Trust me to bless you. 
Test me in this and see. Return to me. Repent. And I will return to you and bless you. You see, God wants us to have the experience of giving our money away or giving up whatever it is we're trusting in to the point where our trust is tested, where we have to ask ourselves, what do I trust to bless me, this money or God? This doesn't necessarily mean that giving away our money or letting go of whatever we're trusting in more than God will do it. But if, we, but if we let go of those things as a response to the reality of who God says we already are, they then become evidence that we believe that we are who God says we are and that He is our treasure and that we are trusting in Him. Repenting is the necessary evidence that we really do trust God more. And this is true with whatever it is we're trusting in more than God, whether it's our time, our relationships, or our sexuality. Jesus' invitation to all of us is to build our life on Him. He is the rock. Everything else is shifting sand. We can't serve two masters. We can't serve both God and money. The kingdom is worth it. It really is like selling everything we own to buy the field with the buried treasure. The call is to take up our cross, whatever the cost, and to come and die and find that I may truly live. Because the kingdom belongs to those who remember that God has already blessed them and who repent of trusting in anything else to bless them. But if this kind of repentance is required for the kingdom of heaven, if this kind of repentance is required to have assurance of God's blessing, it kind of seems like there's a problem, huh? How many of us have tried to repent of the thing that we trust in more than God, only to find ourselves crawling back to it again? Which is why, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? If rich people are not blessed by God, and if that kind of repentance is necessary to have assurance that I am blessed by God, well then, who could ever have assurance that they're truly blessed by God? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, the call is to come to Christ with repentance and believe. Believe. He's calling us to have faith that our sins are forgiven and that he will give us what is required to repent. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible, even this kind of repentance. What if this young man, knowing that on his own he could never go and sell all of his possessions, what if instead he had fallen to his knees and said, Oh, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to know I have eternal life. I want to know that I am right with God and that I have his blessing. Help me. Help me. I think Jesus would have 
lifted him up and said, my son, you are my child. Of course I will help you. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. If you're here this morning and you can remember your identity as a baptized believer, adopted into the family of God, but you're holding on to a sin that you know could cause you, if you don't let go of it, to walk away from Christ sad, just like this young man, then cry out to him this morning. Believe his promise that you are his child, standing in the grace he's already given you, and that nothing is impossible for God. And then tell someone. Give someone else the gift and the privilege of showing you and demonstrating to you the grace of God in the midst of your struggle. This is not a call to earn God's favor. It's not a call to perfect obedience because no one can obey perfectly. It's a call to remember who we already are, that we already have God's favor, and to repent and then trust Him to forgive us and to transform us by His grace through faith as He promises He will do. And that takes us to our final point. We look to our reward. which apparently is not on the screen, but that's what it is. Friends, the blessing of knowing God and walking with Him in holiness is so much greater than anything this world has to offer, and God promises to make us holy. Not right away, lest we should boast, but as we daily Repent and repent and trust him and trust him. And when Peter hears this, he realizes, he realizes that he's done what this rich young man could not do. He has left his father and family and fishing business to come and follow Jesus. Why? Because God opened his eyes to see that following Jesus was so much better and in this moment, Peter realizes that he and the rest of his disciples have already done this. In a culture where family and community and commitment to your family and your community meant as much as riches, Peter left his nets and followed Jesus. And so he says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And some criticize Peter for what he says here because it can sound a little bit like a child wanting candy because he did the right thing when his brother didn't. But Jesus doesn't take it that way. This is how Jesus answers his question. Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus says to him, Peter, because you have done this, you will have great blessings. You will have blessings beyond your wildest imagination. You and the rest of my 12 disciples will sit on thrones, and you, the reconstituted Israel, will judge ethnic Israel. What an amazing, what an amazing thing. You see, I don't believe Peter 
thinks he was able to do that in his own strength. I think Peter knows that all of this is a gift. And so Jesus tells him how wonderful it's going to be for him. And then he goes on, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Just imagine leaving your house. We all know how much we paid for our house or at least how much it's worth now. It would be really hard to leave that house. Imagine leaving your family. Most of us here in this room look forward to gathering with family every Sunday after church. Imagine being apart for them, apart from them for months and months and months. Imagine leaving your land. All for the sake of Jesus. I wonder if there's, there's something in you when you hear these words, both fear that Jesus would ask that much of you and also long to know what it would be like to give all, to give that much up to go and follow Jesus. See, there's nothing that Jesus cannot ask of us. And what, whatever he asks of us is required. But he gives us what he requires. Notice he doesn't say we will earn eternal life if we do all that, but that we will inherit it. It's a gift from our Father. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible, and the reward he promises us is so much greater. There's nothing better than what he offers. What Jesus offers, he says right here, is 100 times better than anything this world says is a blessing. That includes our money. That includes whatever this world says you can do with your sexuality. That includes even the small obediences of laying our life down for our wife, submitting to our husbands, not getting divorced when we want to, as we talked about last week, like all of these things, right? When it is clear in his word what he's requiring of us, he promises to give that to us. Our obedience will never be something that we accomplish in our own strength. They will all be by his grace. So remember your baptism. Remember that you have already been adopted into the family of God. You have been sealed by the grace of God. You have been washed and welcomed and blessed by Jesus. And then repent of whatever we are trusting in for that blessing besides Jesus. And believe. Believe that we already belong because of what Christ has done for us. Believe that even though it is impossible for us to repent in our own power, it is required, but that nothing is impossible for God we repent by the grace of God sealed to us in our baptism because nothing is impossible for God. And then we live our lives looking to the reward, look to the fact that what is waiting for us is a hundred times better than anything this world has to offer.
Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we we know two things are true. We know that we are saved by grace through faith alone. We are justified and placed into your family by an act that you accomplish. And we also know, Father, that obedience is required. And yet we know, because we've experienced it and do experience it every day, that on our own we cannot do it. And so, God, you place us in this perfect place where we live in the moment, dependent constantly on your forgiveness and your grace, remembering all of the past grace that you have given us, assured of the reward that is coming to, our, to, coming to us that we will inherit by faith and faith alone. God, may we live this way fully dependent on you. In Jesus' name we pray.